I'm Bruce Ansley, this is Dougal Rulestone, and this is Derek Morrison. I've known them all for 24 hours or so, but I feel I've known them for a lot longer because of these excellent books, Upstream and Matara, which is Dougal's book. It's a very fine book, I think, and a um, very poetic book. Lovely. And likewise, Surf Dreams, which not only has words in it, it's got lots and lots of excellent photographs, all taken by Derek as well. Dougal's a fly fisherman, as I suppose a lot of people know by, after reading his book. And uh, Derek's a surfer, as well as a photographer and a writer. And I'm just a writer, uh, more or less, or some of the time anyway. And I think all three of us, though, are, are very deeply involved in our country. Um, that's, I think, the thing that unifies us. Um, we all love it, particularly the South Island. The South Island formed us all, and I think is a, very much a part of us. And that's what we write about. We write about the South Island. That's, um, all my books, have, I think, have been about the South Island. <coughs> um, oh, no, except one or two. Um, and I've been a professional writer all my life, uh, in the sense that it's the only way uh, that I've ever earned a living. Uh, laughable as that term might be when you're talking about writing. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, that's how I've made my living. Um, uh, and it's been huge fun. It's been a, a really a lovely life being a writer. And of course, in my life, I've written 11 books. Dougal is the author of the magnificent Upstream on the Matara, which is a deeply satisfying book, by someone who's not only lived all his life in the South, uh, but in more or less the same place. And he has that wonderful style of writing that comes from that sense of place. And uh, to me, it's a, a book of poetry, not just about the beauty of the sport, which is fly fishing, uh, and the river, but in every respect, he's in the same league as our, our two most famous fishing writers, and Brian Turner and Kevin Ireland. Uh, who, and it's not, it came as no surprise to me to find out both those people are, are friends of, of Dougal's. And Derek is that happiest of souls. He, he's uh, made a living in every sense of the word from his passion. Uh, and his book, Surf Dreams, uh, you know, is as much about communities as, the, as, as surfing. All the way from one end of the country, Ayupara, down to Riverton. Uh, he misses a few, as I reminded him, but most of them are there. Um, and uh, the communities that live in those places. And he's been a, a professional photographer uh, for more than a quarter of a century? Yes, yes, yep. that's right. Yep. Uh, surfed, uh, he's, he's photographed and uh, surfing throughout the world. He's also written about the high country um, and the Pacific, and he founded the New Zealand Surf Journal. He was the New Zealand Geographic Photographer of the Year. <laughs> My God, just, ran, just reading a CV like that is hard work. We all look at life, uh, I think, through a lens, and Derek does it for a living, and it's a, it's a very good living. It's a very good result, too, I think. Now, a lot of people who, who uh, are interested in books ask how you get started, and, and um, uh, I want to ask Dougal that because you know, he sort of jumped in at the deep end and is an instant success. Well, I started uh, dabbling with writing um, maybe 10 or so years ago, and I wrote a few articles for fly fishing magazines overseas, and uh, they were accepted, and um, you know, I had a moment of thinking they were pretty good, you know, yeah. that sense of them being quite good. But um, they, they were definitely flawed, and I knew I could see after that I needed to do better. So, but I'd been a reader all my life. I yeah. read a lot. And um, it, it, what drove me, I think, to start seriously writing was uh, 
a need to write about the river that mattered so much to me, the Matara. Our rivers uh, have been neglected by writers and uh, frankly neglected by uh, almost uh, all of the people that arrived here uh, in that, as the Europeans arrived mm. and treated the rivers with great disrespect, really. I wished that um, I'd been able to read stories that people had written about rivers like the Matara um, maybe 50 years ago and so yeah. on. Um, and they simply weren't written. I think people were too busy, you know, uh, yeah. modifying the landscape and, uh, yeah. and making a living. Um, uh, so I, I decided I wanted to write a, a kind of a love story, really, to the river. I did it under the guise of being a fly fisherman because... Um, I felt I needed to slide into it using some some excuse, mm. and it has been my excuse to keep going back to the river uh, 60 or so days a year. I spent a lot of time on it, but I wanted to leave a record for uh, people in the future maybe mm. who might be interested in reading about what that river meant to one person who had mm. lived quite a long life associated with it. It, it took me a long time uh, to really feel like I had... You know, built up the stories and and could justify um, actually mm. setting out to try and write. So that's it was it was a drive really to fill a gap that I thought existed uh, mm. um, in this sort of writing about these things that are really important to us um, but are neglected, sadly. So that yeah, it, it was it was kind of driven by that. Like, mm. no, I don't think there's another book like yours, is there? It, it's um, it's a very personal story. Mm. I, I've injected more of my own life into it mm. uh, than you would expect to see in a book about um, fly fishing, for example. Mm. But it is about one river and the, and the catchment that makes it up. And, um, mm. and, um, well, I suppose that's one thing you and I have in common. You know, quite a lot of life. And, yeah, uh, no, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, you mentioned um, you know, we've lived in this area... Um, for most of our lives, or all of it. Mm. I, w I was away for a, a period of time. I lived in Auckland uh, for three years and in the UK for two or three years back in the 70s. Mm. And I had one of those moments in, in London on a, on a street, standing there one Saturday morning, crowds of people pouring past, and I thought, this is not my place, you know. Mm. Um, and I came back and, um, and I chose to stay when mm. the uh, organisation I worked for moved back in the in the 90s, moved to Auckland. Mm. And uh, that was the last time somebody actually paid me a, a salary. So I, um, I managed <laughs> to craft a living uh, yeah. in, in this part of the world. It's a very deliberate thing on my part. Mm. Yeah. And why did you find the Matara River? I mean, why the Matara? Okay, so it goes back a long way. I was born just a stone's throw from it. Mm. And... Uh, uh, I was talking to my mother a year or so back last year, I think, and uh, uh, mum said uh, she'd been in the home with me for about five weeks. I was a difficult pregnancy, apparently, a difficult mm. kid, generally. Um, and um, she was so despairing that when she got out of hospital in Gore that, uh, that uh, you know, she was desperate. She wondered if she'd mm. ever get out. And she said, my father drove her over the Gore Bridge and, and she mm. said, look, we've got to stop. And she, stopped, she said, we stopped on Terrace Road, which is, happens to be right mm. beside the river. And I, I, I like that idea that my first journey actually was um, mm. uh, over the Matara, even though I was uh, in a cot in the back. But 
I lived on the eastern side of Gore, mm. you know, a very ordinary street, but we had paddocks uh, beside us and we had the Waikaka stream at the end of our road. And it was a wild place and that's where, I, that's where I grew up and that's where I grew to love being near water and, mm. and the river. And the Matara was about three blocks to the west of us mm. and we were surrounded by green hills and the Hokanui's. Mm. And it was, um, it became the landscape of my happiness, really. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, you know, drowning was the great New Zealand mm. way of death, mm. wasn't it, for a long time. I mean, yeah. And that's why we all had, our uh, parents all had great, uh, you know, a million cake stalls each and built swimming pools in all the yeah. schools. Mm. And we all had to thrash around the cold water and yeah. weren't at all appreciative of it. Yeah. And the Matara River, uh, I only saw it once when I was a mm. kid, it looked just terrifying to me. Mm. Well, sometimes it isn't, and it often isn't. So you, you know what rivers are like; they they change their nature, and uh, mm. depending on the part of their geography and 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 what's flowing into them. But um, yet we swam in the river uh, yeah. on those few warm south and evenings. Um, uh, uh, any score. Although when you're a kid, you know your sense of what's uh, warm and what's cold. Particularly when you live in a town like uh, Gore, as <laughs> used to being fairly cold. So that that was our pool, and we swam there. And um, luckily, it was just above the on the northern edge of the town. Yeah. So where Gore emptied its raw sewage into the Matara, uh -huh. uh, that was just below us. Uh, so the river uh, <laughs> where we swam was beautiful, but people. Did drown there. Kids drowned, and uh, a young person I knew dived and off, uh, came off a rope and, yeah, and yeah. crashed in and uh, broke his neck. Broke his and, neck. Uh, mm, yeah, so. yeah. That's what my dad and my dad had no problem with leaping into the sea from when we were about you know just old enough to walk, mm. but uh, we were never allowed to swim in the river. It's far mm. too dangerous. Mm. Uh, for some reason, my father decided it would be a good idea to take me out into the river. As a one-year-old, um, up to my up to my shoulders uh, in the river, with him standing over me, yeah. Mum taking the photograph. So, I, I was. This is beyond before my memory, but um, I was in the river, and, it, and I became so uh, connected to it that my grandparents had to tell me well-intentioned lies to keep me away from it. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, well, you know, you can probably see from the size of Derek's shoulders that he spent a lot of time surfing, and. Um, uh, a lot of times surfing, you know, what made you start writing about surfing? Well... Because you're still surfing, aren't you? I am still surfing, yeah, yeah as much as I can. Um, but, yeah, really started when I was at university of all places, at Massey University, which is about three hours from the Wairarapa coast yeah. and three hours from Taranaki. And I um, just met a bunch of other surfers who had all congregated yeah. in Palmerston yeah. North. Oh. And we went regularly. And I started to take, um, my flatmate gave me a camera to take, so I started going and documenting our trips because they were pretty yeah. amazing. We'd take about $10 and for food and mm. sort of eat virtually nothing and sleep in the grass and the rain, and it was pretty mm. brutal because we couldn't, didn't, couldn't do it any other way. And then um, the stories, of course, that came out of that were really good, and mm. the photos were really good, so the magazine wanted to use them. So I, I think I sent a bunch away, and I got a cheque back for $137. <laughs> And I thought to myself, what am I doing? $137. $137. And I thought, what am I doing vet science for? Yeah. <laughs> and I can make money as a writer and a photographer. <laughs> it's true. I, and I, so I, spent, I think I spent the next 10 years living on two-minute noodles, travelling around the coastline, pretty much learning the craft yeah. of both, of photography and writing as well. Because oh. all the editors wanted... They lo loved the photos, but they always needed the stories oh. to go with them, to wrap around them. Right. You know... We don't, probably don't get paid that well, but I wouldn't change it for the world. 
the reward I get has been amazing. I've had like, yeah. and listening to your stories, both of you, is just like you've taken that same path, and there's probably not that many people that are keen, brave enough to do it or stupid enough to do it, and go and and pursue that where we put our priority is on actually those experiences and mm. that adventure. Mm. Um, so I feel really lucky to have lived the life that I have. And yeah. I now have three yeah. kids and they're all saying the same thing to me now. They don't want to get a job because it's going to limit <laughs> surfing time and their time to go. They won't be able to just drop tools and go to the Catlins and do those sorts of things. So I've got... Um, what are you saying to them? Well, I'm, I'm kind of um, <laughs> just laughing back at myself, really. <laughs> it's going, I've started this. It's the curse of, um, of the surfer, really, and of the explorer, you know. When you come up with a book like this... It's all been worth it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, with that book, we were trying. What I tried really there to do was to try and look through Gis the eyes. Gisborne on the cover. They, he's sworn to. Hey, sworn to speak I thought with we'd... about this, but <laughs> I'm giving it away. I, I can see several of you grabbing the surfboards and shooting up there immediately. But uh... it's it's actually true that they don't want anyone to know where it is. And I um, I turned up to Gisborne when after this had come out, and I was very nervous yeah. in that first trip back there. Yeah. Because I'd put one of their favourite secret breaks on the cover of it. But here you are, alive. Oh, here I am, I survived, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so the idea with that was really to try and um, show what surf culture is in New Zealand. And, and it is quite different to what, they, what we have in Hawaii and what we have in California yeah. and what we have in Australia. And so it was really about trying to peel back the lens and look at it afresh and sort of see what really yeah. was happening in those surf yeah. towns. Yeah. Um, uh, I find the South endlessly... Uh, well, it's compelling, really. It's absorbing. And um, even though I live in the North, I always feel it's somebody else's country. And uh, I think it's that sense of place that's critical, mm. isn't it? Mm. About the way all three of us mm. write. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, I think you do, you've written about um, you know, the, the local landscape and your old friends and, uh, you, uh, and how different that is to being a stranger in a strange land. You feel mm. obviously very comfortable mm. with mm. And so do you. Even though you know, this book ranges up and down the country, mm. um, it's, in a sense, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's about small communities. Incidentally, is it more about the North Island than the South Island? Or, uh... um, there probably is a little bit of a skew to the North Island, just because there's more towns. But the South Island stuff is very well researched. It's been a lot longer on that. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting that I'm, I live here. I, ch I had a choice of where to live in the country, yeah. and I chose to live in Dunedin because on a global scale, it is one of the best surf cities yeah. that we have. There are, there's one in Portugal that's similar, but that's about it. Mm. And there's none where you have a city and the 40 to 50 surf breaks within 40 minutes drive. And it's kind of a secret. <laughs> yeah. I should put a word in uh, for the Matara on that uh, on that score. Uh, not that I'm really keen to see that many more. A bit like your you and your surf breaks, uh, Derek. Um, I really don't want to see more people fishing it. But um, it just happens to be when you look at all of the streams that make up the Matara catchment. It, it's got to be one of the top ten uh, brown trout dry, dry fly fisheries uh, on the planet. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. Now, if this was the US, it would be as famous as the Madison or something like that. And, uh, and it's ignored, yeah. really, apart from those people who know about it and yeah. flock here and ever greater numbers and, right. and, um, uh, and uh, start, to begin, start to disturb the solitude that uh, is such an integral part of uh, fly fishing and surfing, I guess. You know? Oh, 100% with surfing. And there's, 
up north, a lot of the breaks have kind of been ruined because of the crowds. Mm. You know, and at Raglan, yeah. the experience at Raglan is very different now to what it was yeah. when I started. And I actually had a phone call two days ago from the very first person to ever surf it, Campbell mm. Ross, and his story was fantastic because he went out at Manu Bay yeah. and all the rocks, then they didn't have leg ropes back in those days and no one had ever surfed it. Mm. They'd watched these point breaks rolling down and they'd always been surfing the beach. And yeah. One day he said, I'm going to give it a crack. I may say that I, you know, I first met these, these two last night at Dougal's house and uh, here am I busy trying to sort of focus on what we're going to do. And they're talking about, I've got it written down here, Cuba, uh, Kamchatka, mm-hmm. which is somewhere in Russia, that's the best I can go, the Seychelles, Alaska, Canada, the Bahamas, Mexico, Cape York and Belize. But and they're all surfing come... Um, fishing spots. Well, the intriguing it's thing a... was, though, that um, it was Cape York and the western side of Cape York that uh, both Derek and, and I knew. And I, I really haven't come they across They spend all their time running away from crocodiles. Who knows that? Uh, knows that part of the world. So that was, yeah. uh, that was interesting. And I, I think I said at the time it's been an interesting um, contrast for me because uh, I love that coast. I've, I've spent a week camping up there now for the last... Close to 20 years, yeah. uh, just sleeping on the edge of the beach and, right. uh, and fishing our way right up yeah. to Torres Strait, fly fishing. Was and that, being Sorry, was that the, the beach in which you heard footsteps approaching and you, <laughs> you know, four at a time? <laughs> kind of. Well, as Derek knows, it's a wild and dangerous and absolutely beautiful place. It's a wonderful contrast with um, the Matara, which is, you know, my, my place, um, because... Um, the Matara and, and most of New Zealand has been yeah. modified so quickly yeah. Yeah. by European settlement. Uh, so in 150 years, it's kind of unrecognisable yeah. in terms of what it would have looked like. But Cape York, uh, that, that western side of Cape York, when I went on there, it, it looks as I imagine it must have uh, looked, um, you know, when the first Dutch explorers saw that coast in the 1600s. Aboriginals have lived there for maybe 60 or 70,000 years uh, and they have, have treated that land well. And it's a bit of a wake-up, really, in terms of the wildness and, the, and the, uh, just how, how, what a fertile ocean that is and, mm-hmm. and the wildlife and the sharks and the, and the crocodiles. And it's a dangerous place. And I think the danger of it will hopefully protect it. I wouldn't count my blessings. There's now a huge Rio Tinto, won't surprise you. Rio Tinto um, is now developing a, uh, a bauxite mine mm. uh, on the south side of where I fish. You know, it's 50 kilometres long, 10 mm. kilometres wide, and they'll strip mine a um, massive amount of bauxite out of that. So there's, no matter where you go now, there is mm. the, these changes taking place. Mm. But they've happened in the... Uh, in the Matara Valley as well. Sad mm. stories, and maybe we will talk about them. I'd like to have a, an opportunity at some stage to talk about, you know, some of the. I mean, I, I've been lucky because I um, I feel such great joy when I'm fly fishing, and it's been a pleasure that's helped me going back to the river and feeling feeling good about it, um, having these wonderful experiences. But um, you can't lose sight of what we've lost in that regard. And um, you know, some of the some of the stories are kind of sad, really, um, just stories of, of mistreatment and uh, and and uh, uncaring in many ways. I mean, I uh, the main river is um, 
it's holding up okay, but the tributaries are being are being damaged by changes in agricultural practice. And mm. you know, I've faced that in my rel- you know uh, long life by human terms, but you know, it's a very short time geologically. And um, one of my favourite streams, a um, a spring creek, Fortune Creek, which I write about in the book. Uh, when I started fishing it in 1970, this beautiful little stream mm. running on the, just on the north side of the Hokanui's, running into the Matara. The water is clear as vodka, really. Um, beautiful plant life swinging in the current there like, like flags, trout, a clean bottom. Mm. And um, in the space of 15 or 20 years, uh, uh, the farmer had to, uh, for economic reasons, gave up sheep farming. It was converted to dairy. Um, the pretty quickly the streamside vegetation was mm. pulled out, um, burnt, and before you know it, there are pivot irrigators uh, just going across that landscape. There is uh, cow shit sort of arcing through the air as it's fertilising the ground, mm. and no surprise that quite quickly uh, Fortune Creek deteriorated badly. The water lost its gloss. I used to drink from it with, mm. with impunity, but I started to think I shouldn't and the insect life in the stream deteriorated badly and frankly it died I mean if you if you cross over it um, it, it runs under the highways you head towards Riversdale it's a inconspicuous thing and it looks okay mm. but if you get close to it and look at it in any kind of detail it's a dead piece of water mm. and, and that's happened too much through that catchment mm. so there's been um, carelessness mm. and uh, you tell the story of some cows walking through mm-hmm. the stream, which is prohibited, mm. uh, and calling the organisation, mm-hmm. which is ironically called Environment Southland. Mm. And yeah, well, I regularly called Environment Southland. Um, it's the kind of thing that happens, you know, when you when you spend so much time on the on the rivers. Uh, I mean, they don't have people out looking at the rivers uh, that much, frankly. And at times I wonder if they care. It's almost you know 20 years ago. Mm. It seemed like it was just a bother. Yeah. And uh, I would call them and talk about things I saw happening in the upper catchment of the Otomita stream, another stream that I just loved that flowed through the Hokanui Hills and runs into the Matara mm. uh, near Mandeville. And they just didn't want to get involved as the tussock was burnt off and cows broke down banks and ate the flax that was holding the banks together and so on. And I'll take photographs and, and they say they would say, well, we might, we, perhaps we'll, sit, we'll get somebody there in a couple of weeks. But just three or four years ago, I was there with a Scottish friend and we were, we were fishing. And, um, and I've got to say the river, by and large, is well fenced now. But this is in the upper reaches of it. And uh, there were about 100 cows maybe in the river, uh, crapping and peeing in the river and so on, smashing down the banks. They'd clearly been there for some time and they were leaving a real stain of, of, um, of foulness downstream of them. And so I took photographs and mm. I, um, I sent them off to Environment Southland and I called Environment Southland and uh, they said initially, oh, yes, no, it sounds terrible. And then um, I had a call the next day from somebody who said, actually, it's not currently against their plan. Um, it, the, the new plan, uh, if it's adopted, probably will, will keep cows out of, the, out of that part of the river. But at the moment, it's not. And I said, wow, you know, anglers by and large, and the 
population generally have felt that mm. cows weren't supposed to be in the river. The person said, but thank you for getting in touch and, uh, you know, kind of keep up the good work. And I said, well, what's the point of it, really? And um, I went on to say, would you mind just sending me... Look, I'm, I'm, I'm driving or something, some excuse. Mm. I said, I'm not... Uh, I don't have a pen with me. I'd just like to note that down. Would you mind sending me an email just confirming that it isn't part of the plan? And I had a call the next day from somebody else who said, look, we have spoken to the farmer. And um, he said the fence had just gone down and, um, and we've told him it's poor practice and so on. But it's, it's just a lack, of, mm. a lack of caring. Did you ever get it in writing? Uh, no, they, they were reluctant to do that. And I'm not sure what the current state of the plan is, but I think anglers and people have, who love rivers have got mm. very tired of this thing. And I think the difficulty is um, uh, these organisations that are supposed to be protecting our waterways, Environment mm. South and the IRC and so on, they have, they have conflicting agendas. Mm. They, they, have, they have responsibility for other things as well. And um, having environment in their title, as ECAN mm. does as well, is misleading because you feel like these are the people who you could rely on to, mm. to support you. And actually, most of the time, you're an irritant to them. Mm. Mm. And your book actually gets into the, the question of the environment and, and the mm. degradation quite a lot. Have you had much feedback on that? Well, I mean, I have feedback from people who are converted. So the risk is you just end up talking to people who share your views about these things. Mm. Um, well, they're always the best kind, though, aren't they? Nick? Well, they are, <laughs> yeah. But, but to, make, to make an impact, you have to reach beyond that. And that was one of the other things I hoped my book would do, that yeah. it would... I wanted to write a book about, about a river, not so much from necessarily a fly-fishing point of view, because if we love them more deeply and, and understand rivers uh, in more mm. detail, then mm. we have a better chance of uh, protecting mm. them. I mean, I, I'm lucky as a fly oh, fisherman yeah. to have that opportunity to spend so much time looking at the water and, and looking at mm. the insects and the birds and so on mm. because you come, become immersed in that. If you're going to be any good as a, as a fly fisher or somebody observing, mm. then you have to get into the detail. And fly fishing really takes you into the, into the, the detail of the, of the river. What I see in terms of insect life and so on mm. and, and, and birds, it's 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 quite discouraging in many ways. I mean, there are there's still some wonderful experiences to be had, but we've lost so much of our insect life and, and our birds and those moth snowstorms that we, that we experienced mm. as, as young people driving in Southland on those warm evenings and the windscreen would be coated with... And it seemed like a, an annoyance, but actually it was a sign that we were treating the yeah. land a little yeah. better, that these things yeah. were able to live on that land. Uh, I think we're very lucky we've got people like you who can write about it so well. The sea is better, but um, it's still under threat, isn't it? You've, you've noticed a few changes um, in your time as a surfer. I mean, yeah. The yeah. old days when a lot of small towns particularly used to just have a sewage pipe that just ran out on the beach so seem to have, by and large, gone, but they're still not perfect, are they? No, they're not at all, really. And I think even um, like a good example is Dunedin, which is quite a modern city. Mm. And um, mm. still today, in a big rain event, it will mm. put raw sewage into our ocean, yeah. which yeah. I think is kind of unforgivable. Mm. But um, it does happen. And there are other towns that are doing the same thing or mm. have very poorly, like Auckland, for example, very poorly designed systems that haven't really been addressed. Mm. So when they have flood events, they have major issues as well. 
with surfers is you're out there amongst it, mm. and especially when you go to remote places and you see, well, this is what it could be like mm. where there aren't people, mm. and mm. then you go and surf in the city and you think, well, actually, this isn't that good. Mm. It shows you, and you're mm. there the whole time, so you notice those little changes. Yeah, because you're repeating. Because Auckland now, a lot of city beaches are not safe to swim around, which I would have thought in New Zealand would be. Horrific, you know, the yes. people would probably say, What? Why? It's very bizarre. Why else would we live here? Yeah. And, um, and now you can't, not only can't you drink the water mm. in the rivers, but you yeah. can't even swim in it. Yeah, that's it's, right. Uh, it's a serious state of affairs. They've very, they've almost seem to accept it, which is crazy, yeah. and we shouldn't ever do that. Um, and I think as surfers, we're very vocal about it, and we do what we can to try and try and remedy it. Yeah. But there are also good environmental stories. Mm. And we're very lucky here in Dunedin because we have you know, a very active ocean. So yeah. our water is um, actually quite clear yeah. when we don't have big rain events or uh, issues with our sewage system. But what we have here, in 1993, a sea lion came and returned to the coastline here yeah. and had a pup, which was fascinating. Yeah. First time that it, that it happened for a very long time since they'd been basically hunted out and, and, and left the, the mainland. And uh, this year, there were, I think there were 18 pups born on, right? on Otago, and there were four born in the Catlins that they know of. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, the population is actually rebounding, yeah. and it, yeah. it creates a really interesting situation for surfers because um, <laughs> they love to play. Yeah. <laughs> they're very jovial and they um, like to come up to surfers and they don't have any fear at all. Yeah. And so... Um, we, ha- we often have um, surf contests yeah. where the people from out of town will get chased away from the waves uh-huh. and they've got 20 minutes to catch three good waves or two right. good waves yeah. and they'll be chased away and the um, people who know, the, the locals will just, okay, just stay calm. So and, you're training the sea lions. Yeah, 100%. Going, really. It helps, yeah. Very, really, really helps. Uh-huh. There's been some quite famous um, events yeah. where one of the top seeds is been paddling off to the to the pool yeah. to get away from a sea lion, and, and <laughs> quite far. the locals have got, come through and won the heat. <laughs> yeah, so they, they do work to your advantage once you realise it is just play, and not they're not trying to have a go at you mm. or attack you. A lot of people do misinterpret mm. it as an attack because uh, they do come up to you about this far away with their mouth open yep. and their teeth looking at you. <laughs> And they do occasionally bite you on the knee, grab you on the knee like that. Oh, there, that's Bruce. A, that's all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's all just fun. Mm. <laughs> 400 kilograms of it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's been yeah. a really good story for Dunedin, mm. you know, and for, uh, for as surfers, everyone's learning now how to, how to yeah. um, you know, spend, share those waves with them. Yeah. And spend that time out there with them. And I think mm. it's a... It's a huge asset for us. <laughs> it's amazing, really, once you get your head around the, yeah. the, um, the yeah. behaviour. Yeah. Yeah. The beaches are so so clean by comparison with most we see. We're talking about Cape York, and uh, I'm not sure you would have seen it as you climbed above the high tide level there, this beautiful, uh, wild place. But um, It's a long way to go for a af- swim. After the wet season, in, mm. um, the, there's just an enormous amount of plastic that washes out of Indonesia and Papua New Guinea in particular, and there's, a, there's just a, a mm. mass of plastic back into, mm. the, into that forest. That's, yeah. the ug- that's the ugly story. And it's true of the Caribbean, many parts of the world. Uh, mm. Yeah, I've, I've just come back from a week's tramping on the West Coast, and one of the, one of the virtues, or possibly the only virtue of COVID-19, is it's chased a lot of tourists, or kept a lot mm. of tourists out. Mm-hmm. And I know that's, that's good news for trampers, but very bad news if you happen mm. to own a hotel in Fox or somewhere. But uh, it does seem to me that, in a way, we're getting the country back again. And... Uh, I mean, there are a lot of 
There were a lot of surfers coming in from overseas, weren't there? Oh, um, they, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, like that's what that was. Right. What was filling up Raglan and those yeah. main those big main spots. Beaches. So yeah, yeah. And so without that now, it's definitely got a much better feel to it. Yeah. Because um, Kiwis have a certain way of operating in the surf, so they understand there's sort of the unwritten laws right. of, of who's gets right away. Um, but other people from other places have a very different style of it. Yeah, they're yeah. paid all the way to come to the other side of the world to surf Raglan. So that's their wave and they're going to take it no matter what. So you end mm. up with a lot of aggression and and uh, actually yeah. quite a lot of lot of uh, collisions and things like that as well, oh. particularly with Raglan, because everyone wants to surf it whether they have, yeah. know how to surf it or not. You need a few trained sea lines up yes, there. Yes, we do. Yeah. We need, to, we need yeah. them to go around. Them. They yeah. once were right around New Zealand, so hopefully we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's come, come back to me in about 400 years. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it just feels like yesterday. Well, the same, um, the same has really been true uh, in terms of fly fishing uh, as, as well. You know, yeah. just the the number of people that have been flying in and using cheap airfares and uh, filling up the uh, filling up the river, destroying solitude. This has been like stepping back into the seventies, mid seventies. It's been wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to read something that Derek has written, which I'll find any second. Um, <coughs> surfing the heartbeat of the ocean's surface is to merge with nature and all her creative spectacular. No two ways can be the same. The, mere, the very moment you're immersed in can never be recreated, which is quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, um, uh, you're, you're dealing with a changing world, which uh, you're a totally changing world from second to second. That's it. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, no, you, you can't really prepare mm. yourself, so you do prepare yourself to be open to any... Opportunity, yeah, which I think is um, quite a good state to be in. And then when you are out in that in that water, and it has been likened before to uh, almost like a meditative state. Yeah, yeah. So you're sort of the breathing in those positive ions from the top surface of the ocean. Yeah. And then trying to get in tune with a rhythm that's coming, however long, twelve second period, twenty second period which is the waves, how long the waves yeah. take to come, and then the wind yeah. the wind coming yeah. into that as well, and there's a lot of different factors that come into it. Yeah. I had a friend who is actually, he's not actually in this book, but he's in the next book that we were doing, and he talks a lot oh about... God, there's another one coming up. There is another one coming out <laughs> in November. Um, yep. And this one, this one de he deals with... Um, he's done a lot of training and meditation, yeah. and he believes that surfing is about as close as you can get to spending... Learn, you know, practicing for like ten years in Tibet to be a monk. You think yep. surfers get it, and it's interesting uh, because he obviously hasn't been fly fishing, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And uh, and do the monks know about this? So, no. Uh, yeah, no, they probably don't. I think the trouble with um, fly fishing is there is also the frustration, surely. No, not really. No, no there's. I mean, most of the time, not. It's just it's that same immersion in the in the surroundings that that um, yeah. because the moments of actually uh, throwing a fly towards a fish and so yeah. on are quite. Even if you have a great day, you're not doing that that often. But you, so I, I'm spending maybe eight hours um, walking beside the river, in it, crossing it. Um, watching the birds and all of that stuff, and, and you're very much absolutely in the moment of it, as I imagine you are on the water. So you do get a sense of that oh. complex harmony of all that. I mean, I a couple of weeks ago on the Upper Matara heard a, the sound of a um, 
Carrere, the falcon behind me screeching in and mm. landed on a branch nearby and I got under it and put my rod down and watched it and um, its partner came in and for about 40 minutes I just, I, it, and they were trying, they were mm. flying between three trees and mm. once one of them came back with a, a, a small bird that it started to tear apart in the, uh, on the branch above me. So you, you do get immersed into it, and, and mm. I watch the mm. birds and so on for their um, signals about what the insects are doing, mm. because these natural things are um, much more attuned to, to that world than we are. But in mm. terms of sounds, the sound of moving water, I, I think I read something out of study by Target University people and, and a university in Canada recently saying that sound of moving water was the best sound for human well-being and uh, you know I, th I, I love the sound of uh, the water mm. Mm. it's one of the great sounds of nature moving water and, and birds really mm. yeah you're both involved with moving water aren't you mm. Mm. I've had a few moments when it's really big where the mm. sound of, of moving water mm. is not very comfortable oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> me too in the river yeah. you would too the river as yeah. well yeah Oh well, with with Brian uh, some many years ago, not on the Matara, Brian, but um, crossing Hast and going up to Thomas, and we had more moving water than we wanted to deal with, and we almost lost our lives, you know, um, and have a friend who was drowned on the west coast fishing. So yeah, it can be challenging. Mm. I remember reading a book uh, by a, an American surfer who became. A writer for the New Yorker. Is it called The Barbarian Days? Yeah, Barbarian Days. Yes. Barbarian Days. Yeah. And his whole life was based on surfing. You know, and that led to a concern for some of the people in, in some of the remote places. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then that led to, in turn, mm. uh, writing articles for the New Yorker. And, uh, and uh, so it was, so his entire life was framed by a wave, really. That's right. Yeah, that was William Finnegan, and yeah. it was it is a fascinating account of of a time uh, in surfing mm. when we were discovering waves. Mm. So from an exploratory position, it was pretty amazing. They were some of the first to surf some of the waves through Fiji, mm. and some of the waves that have become very very famous now. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it is fascinating, and it was just very similar to all of us here. Really, mm. he was obsessed. Would you call yourself obsessed? Oh yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I am. I'm, I'm cursed. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, it's a great curse. But yeah, well, I, I, a good example is I can't go and have a holiday in Central Otago. Yeah. Because there's nothing there nothing. for me. <laughs> it's a... Apart from the mountains in winter. <laughs> <laughs> but I spend my time on the coast, and yeah. I'm, yeah. every decision yeah. I make is around mm. what, where are we going to go for? Where's the best surf? So we will. You know, skip through Christchurch mm. sometimes and go to Kaikoura, mm -mm. and we'll go down to the Catlins, and we'll mm. be like we're in heaven in the Catlins. Mm. And so, all of a lot of our decisions are around that. You know, where do mm. we come back to live? Was Dunedin because of the surf? I remember when I worked in Australia, I actually, actually worked on a dirt bike magazine, and I had a really great editor, and I would always be allowed to take one or two extra days, and I'd take all the assignments that were by yeah. good surf breaks. So I got went to go all the time to Kira and surf all the Gold Coast breaks. Yeah. And I'd go to Tasmania and surf all the breaks there, WA, mm. and all around, everywhere I went, I took my surfboard mm. and an extra mm. couple of days for surfing. Ah. Yeah, mm. yeah, excellent. Have you, so you, there's another surfing book in Prospect. Is there another fishing book in, in Prospect? I, uh, I, I mean, I doubt if I have another book in Prospect, but uh, I'm keen to keep writing, probably just for personal satisfaction. I enjoy mm. the process. I write a little bit 
mm. pretty much every day. Yeah. Um, and it's been really, um, when I look back on my life now, it's been the most, these last few years have been the most nourishing years, really, um, getting, getting stories down. And, um, you know, whether it's just my grandkids yeah. or uh, it doesn't really matter. I, I, I just like doing it. You just it. like writing. I do. Mm. I do. But I love reading. So I've, um, and the writing sort of flowed from mm. that. Mm. My wife Sally was, uh, who sort of endured 50 odd years of writing with me. And, um, and she said, you know, that to her, the most interesting question is, you know, when you have a driving passion as, mm. as you two have and I have about writing, you know, how do you accommodate family? You've got a family who doesn't seem mm. to mind you, um, you know, uh, crawling under a bush and spending the night. Well, it hasn't uh, always been the You've got a family who doesn't seem to mind you cruising around the mm. country endlessly. I've got, a, I've got a family who put up with me being away for weeks and weeks on end. It's a, it's a difficult question, isn't it? It is. Well, I kind of rearrange my life to be able to accommodate more of what I love doing. Um, uh, when I came back and, and, and gave up paid work, I mean, it's when, you, when you're not um, looking for a salary from somebody, it, mm. it, it comes with challenges and, mm. and risk and insecurity, but it gives you a freedom. So in a way, you know, for, for 30 years, mm. I've had that kind of freedom. I'm, I haven't been going to the office on a mm. regular kind of basis and I've been able to um, pack in a lot, of, a lot of fishing. So I probably... Mm. I probably spend 60, 60 days uh, freshwater uh, fly fishing and uh, until last year I, I've been perhaps getting 15 or 20 days uh, saltwater fly fishing and mm. um, around the ocean. I mean, it's the beauty about, uh, about fly fishing. If you, you can do it in salt and so I, I can fish wherever I go, kind of. Yeah. Mm. Um, 60 days, you'd, you'd spend at least that on the road, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah, I probably do. And, and yeah. I guess the way with the family, I have tried to bring them into it as much as uh, possible. Mm. So all my three kids are probably more obsessed than I've ever been uh, with surfing, which is awesome. That's probably the thing I'm happiest about in my life. Good little success point. Um, although it is a curse, they haven't discovered that bit yet, but they will. Yeah. Um, but I drag them around on my trips yeah. as much as I can. Um, and we, yeah, we... We do as much as we can. My wife doesn't surf that much, but she does surf, but she loves the whole lifestyle of it. Does so she? she's happy to come and do those adventures and hang out in the rain in the Catlins for four days while we <laughs> oh. surf. And have it's a woman's dream, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, no, we do, we do actually have a really... Um, I'm very lucky like that, just yeah. being able to involve them. And when I did this, um, this, this book, and I've always tried to take um, my children out of school yeah. to come and hold my lights for me, when I'm doing these jobs, so they'll come and either hold my lights or just go surfing the whole day while I do the interviews and photos that I need to do, and then at yeah. the end of the day we'll go and do the next thing. And um, that's been probably one of the most rewarding parts of my work to be able yeah. to see that sort of shared a little bit with them, but not that they have to do too much, but that they get to go and have those adventures. I did get a little bit sick of coming back and trying to explain, and and you sort of you know like a trip like Cape York that's kind of changes the way you think about everything mm, yeah. in your life. I come back and you kind of try to explain mm. stuff that to them, but it's it's like the, the, the reason the Aborigines tell their stories along song lines yeah. is to have that story told in context, and to try and tell it out of context, mm. it can be very difficult sometimes. Mm. And so I thought, well, I want them to learn those stories mm. in context mm. of what we're doing, mm. and that's yeah. been really rewarding for me. Has it? Yeah. 
harder because you can't yeah. you, know, you can't go and do all the drop drop tools and do everything on the mm. side that you might do otherwise yeah. go and have a couple of bottles of wine with somebody or things like that but you can um you can go and you know it's 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 pretty amazing to have them there yeah in a way you're spared the the, the writer's uh, the real problem was just having to spend so much time alone yes 100 percent, and photography as well although photography yeah. brings me to people and and i guess i with a lot of what i'm doing i'm really trying to involve the human element rather than yeah. just isolating myself so i'll take people into those remote locations yeah. so it actually doesn't feel too solo it's a bit of a team effort, yeah. big wave stuff. It's yeah. definitely a big team effort. You know, we might get um, three jet skis with six people and you're all, you have to work together yeah. um, to make it safe because it can be pretty yeah. um, pretty crazy trying to head out into an ocean where you've got white water as high as the ceiling and you're trying to get your jet skis through there to get out the back to go and yeah. hopefully someone's going to catch a big wave and you're gonna, I'm going to be in the right place to get a photo of it. We're probably drawn in similar ways to these um, um, unusual and reasonably isolated locations. I mean, a little yeah. bit the same, Kamchatka and, and uh, Cuba and uh, places like that. Like, right. I love fishing in Belize down near the border with Honduras and Guatemala and um, they're remarkable places, you know, ah. so, so far away. We've only got uh, a few minutes left. Uh, um, would anybody like to ask a question of... Any of the three of us? I was interested in the differences you found between the surfing communities. Um, yeah, so it varies a lot. Um, what's, what happened was we went, I did all my research just before COVID. In fact, it was lockdown was, able, was why I was able to meet my deadline because uh, um, I couldn't do anything else but, and we weren't allowed to surf. But um, what happened then was we had this, the big influence of tourism and the influence of house prices so you had the second generation of people who grew up in, who grew up there, spent their whole life in Raglan, and suddenly couldn't afford to buy. Had a young family couldn't afford to buy their home in Raglan, and had to move to other places. So you had these kind of new communities emerging in different places. So Ahipar is a great example. A lot of those people from Raglan wanted a, a, the same sort of wave, so they went to Ahipara where they could find that. Um, and but the prices, house prices were a bit more affordable. Only just though, um, and so and they're shooting up now, aren't they? Is that they are all around. Yeah, they were at that stage. They were starting to go, and it was even getting hard to get into somewhere like Ahipara. So there's kind of like a triangle around um, Auckland, really, which is the driver, main driver, and it was pushing. So anywhere from uh, Raglan across to even Gisborne had started to go, and anywhere north of there, within striking distance of Auckland, had changed a lot in the way that community was formed. And you still had communities like in Taranaki where they are holding on to those ideals of surfing from back in the 90s, which was very much a localism. Uh, so if you stepped out of line in the surf break, you get punched in the nose. And, that's, um, and it really worked, actually, because <laughs> you didn't want to get punched in the nose that often. So you tended to um, pull, you know, do, you know, step into line, and so that's still really alive in, in places like Taranaki, where it's not happening at all in Raglan. So there's also the other problem then is there's more injuries from people running into people and not knowing what they're doing, and no one really knowing the rules, and it gets a bit more complicated. Apart from the difference being about sort of like where you are in line for the surf mm. break, mm. what else? The actual community on the ground. What's how would you define a surf community on the ground apart from the lining up for the surf? A lot of it comes down to what's available there for people work-wise. So it did, it did, um, it did have a, a sort of an anchor in, in that. 
Um, so I think uh, if you go, if you looked at somewhere like um, uh, Mount Monganui, it was definitely a more urban community. So they're more connected and they weren't um, as friendly in the water, for example. Whereas you go to somewhere a bit further away, say the Wairarapa, and everyone is everyone who is in the water knows each other. So it's a smaller, smaller density essentially. Yeah, so they were quite different in that way. Um, I think down in, say, in Dunedin, it is really like a village feel, even though it is mm. does swell with uh, the students' influence from the students. So that brings a lot of energy and a lot of pressure in there. So that those first months when they arrive, there are a lot of um, you know, sort of headbutting between the two groups, and then it sorts itself out very quickly. Um, so the locals are very pretty mellow actually, but there is that that does happen occasionally something about how being by or in the water affects your sense of self. Yeah, well, it's, it, for me, it's just such an integral part of my life, really. Uh, I love the water, whether it's in the, in the ocean or the river, but uh, my, all I know is that my life would be much poorer if I wasn't able to spend a lot of time walking up rivers. And I've sometimes wondered whether it's uh, even about fly fishing. It's, um, mm. I think, the friends and... Um, and the beauty of uh, those experiences, particularly at this point in my life, you know, that connection with um, what's happening in nature and, and a sense, a better sense of, um, you know, the cycle of water and um, things that I wouldn't have thought about um, 20, 30 years ago, but, you know, the wonder of uh, just how the rivers keep going, you know, the, the, that water being lifted off the Tasman Sea and piled up in clouds on the Air Mountains and... Um, mm and constantly running, and um, it can't help but uh, move you, really. And I, what it's done for me is, um, I think, allowed me to see more effectively where I fit in the scheme of things, you know, where I stand in nature, for example, and the interconnectedness of all of these things, um, um, that not a sense at all that I'm, you know, at the top of that tree looking down, I'm part of it, and... Um, I think when you spend a lot of time wading through rivers and feeling that water on you and watching the birds and all of that and do it for so many hours, then it does change you, I think. Mm. You feel very insignificant in those massive landscapes and where you have no control. You really do realise that you are just part of a moment and you're not connected to anything you have no control over or anything either. And a friend of mine who tried to climb Everest a few times, eventually did climb it, he always said to me, Derek, it's just a matter of trying to sneak up and sneak back. And I feel like that's a very good way of how I feel sometimes when the ocean's very big and you really are sneaking in and out of it. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming and uh, I hope you've been entertained. So thank you very much.